Hello and welcome to Our American States, a podcast from the National Conference of State Legislatures. This podcast is all about legislatures, the people in them, the policies, process, and politics that shape them. I'm your host, Ed Smith. There are very strong incentives for both consumers as well as energy producers to shift from dirty energy to clean energy generation. That was Dr. Ali Nouri, Assistant Secretary for Congressional and Intergovernmental Affairs at the U.S. Department of Energy. He's one of my guests on the podcast, along with David Terry, Executive Director of the National Association of State Energy Officials. I sat down with each of them to discuss the bipartisan $1.2 trillion Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act that President Joe Biden signed into law in November 2021. That bill provides billions in new funding for energy-related programs and stands up 60 new programs at the Department of Energy. Dr. Nuri discussed funding to improve the resiliency of state electric grids, nuclear power, electrical vehicle charging infrastructure, hydrogen, carbon capture and storage, reducing home heating and cooling costs, and other issues. These new investments will be complemented by additional energy-related funding and programs included in the recently enacted Inflation Reduction Act. States and the DOE are in the process of implementing these major federal bills. Terry discussed how state energy offices are working with federal officials, the role of state legislatures in implementing these programs, and how this new funding will affect state energy policy goals. Here's our discussion, starting with Dr. Nuri. Dr. Nuri, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Ed. Great to be with you. Well, thanks for coming on to talk about the new energy funding and programs created in the Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act, and to some degree in the Inflation Reduction Act as well. And I wonder if you could start with kind of a high-level overview of these uh, pieces of legislation and how they'll impact the energy system. Thanks, Ed. I'm happy to do that. As you mentioned, these are both very significant bills. The bipartisan infrastructure law uh, was passed last year by Congress, signed into law by the president. And this year, of course, the Inflation Reduction Act, very significant climate change and clean energy legislation. And the goals are really threefold, Ed. These bills really advance clean energy They advance our energy sector uh, in terms of both reliability as well as a whole suite of clean energy and climate-friendly energy bills, uh, energy policies. Second, they really reduce the energy costs for consumers. The third piece, which is a really, really important one as well, is that they really work to revitalize U.S. clean energy manufacturing across the country. The way they meet these three objectives is through a combination of policies. So one of the really important parts of the Inflation Reduction Act in particular is it includes tax credits to companies, nonprofits in the form of incentives to really expand clean electricity generation. And these tax credits are really long-term policy objectives that go out for 10 years. So typically when, when Congress renews tax credits for clean energy generation. It might do it for two years. Sometimes it does it just for one year. Uh, This time around, you're talking about a 10-year window. And that's really important, especially for industry, to have the long-term certainty to make the kind of investments that they need to do to advance a whole suite of clean energy technologies. These include wind energy. They include solar 
But they also include a new tax credit for hydrogen production, a new tax credit for nuclear energy production, also a, an enhanced tax credit for carbon capture and sequestration. So that's a really important policy that's going to advance a lot of clean energy and really push down our emissions that come from the electric sector. In fact, overall, emissions are expected to reduce by about 40% by just the year 2030 as a result of these two pieces of legislation. So very, very powerful incentive mechanisms at, at work here. That the other piece of these incentives, by the way, is in addition to the incentives on the generation side, the bills also really uh, include incentives for consumers to uh, replace, for example, less efficient home appliances with ones that are more energy efficient. So we can reduce our fuel costs over the course of the year. The other really powerful incentive tools for, again, for, for consumers in homes and buildings are uh, both combination of tax credits as well as rebates for folks that qualify for the rebates to uh, replace, for example, uh, your water heater or your furnace with an electric water heater or an electric heat pump. The idea behind those credits is that essentially the bills help you with the upfront costs of these various appliances, and then you, you get the benefit of having the fuel savings uh, over the course of the year that come with more energy-efficient technologies. The last piece, Ed, that I just want to touch on was the manufacturing piece. This is, this is really where these bills are unique. They really enhance federal policies so that the federal government can really partner with states, with industry, to bring back and really shore up uh, a lot of the supply chains. As you know, at COVID-19, combined with Putin's war uh, really highlighted some of our vulnerabilities when it comes to these supply chains. And the Inflation Reduction Act in particular, for example, includes loans, grants. These are incentives that industry can use to build new facilities or retrofit existing facilities in order to manufacture things like electric vehicle batteries or energy storage technologies or the various parts of the solar supply chain. Uh, just just last week, in fact, the Department of Energy announced a $2.8 billion grant award program that went to 20 companies across the country that are looking to bring back various aspects of battery supply chains to the country. And that's just the first installment of a multi-installment set of policies to help on that front. So, so a lot of really important and exciting policies at play here with these two bills. Well, thanks for that overview. That's a, it's a complicated bill, and I think that gives us a good uh, grounding in what the main pillars are. Let me ask you about a few specifics. First, in July, DOE announced $2.3 billion in formula funds to improve the resilience of the electricity grid. I'm wondering, how's DOE hoping that states will use those funds to manage the risks associated with wildfires, extreme weather, and other natural disasters to the, to the grid? That's a great, great question, uh, Ed. First and foremost, there's a couple reasons why this grid investment is so critical. First, I think we have to recognize that many aspects of the grid are, are just old. Some, some parts of the grid, for example, were built out 100 years ago and are really in need of upkeep and upgrading. The second piece of it is that because of the 
impact that we're seeing uh, with respect to climate change on extreme weather, we're seeing even more vulnerabilities on the grid. We see this, for example, with hurricanes. We saw this with hurricanes, for example, that, that really devastated the the grid in Puerto Rico, that really damaged the grid in uh, Florida. Out west, we're seeing drought that is worse than it's been in a thousand years. And that, of course, exacerbates extreme heat and results in wildfires that are burning hotter and they're more frequent. In many of these cases, the grid is really one of the major energy systems and and, and really major critical infrastructure that's impacted in all of this. And the bipartisan infrastructure law really recognized this this vulnerability that the grid has to a lot of these extreme weather events and made substantial investments for upkeeping the grid, developing innovative technologies to make uh, our energy sector more resilient. There's even investments to make the grid smarter, so to speak. Uh, The grid is increasingly digitized. The specific pot of money that you referred to, that uh, $2.3 billion investment, is really designated uh, for states. So that is a a formula-based funding that will go to all states. States have flexibility to spend that money on a whole host of uh, areas to really make their power grid more resilient. So this could be things like removing vegetation, for example, from areas around transmission lines and poles to reduce some of the wildfire risk to things like undergrounding electrical equipment, and and other types of technologies as well to make the power system more resilient in general. This is one tranche of really a multi-multi-grant program. Some of it is in formula funding, some of it is competitive. Coupled with some of the investments in uh, the Inflation Reduction Act, we really uh, think these programs will go a long way uh, in making the grid and the energy system writ large, uh, more more resilient and more reliable. Another area I wanted to ask you about is nuclear power. There's some significant support for advanced reactors and subsidies for existing nuclear plants in the IIJA. Given the public's trepidation between Fukushima and, for us old people, Three Mile Island, I wonder what you can say about the, how the department views the role of nuclear power in the nation's electric system and how we address the concerns that maybe some people have. Sure. Well, as, as, as you said, Ed, when it comes to nuclear, safety and security is really paramount. As far as our standards go on, on, on nuclear energy, really worldwide, uh, U.S. has gold standards in this area, which, which is really the, the reason that our fleet has been able to perform uh, in, in a safe and secure manner. And that's really important because uh, nuclear is a very important component of both our energy reliability as well as our ability to address climate change by deploying clean energy. In fact, today, something around 20%, just shy of 20% of our clean electricity that we generate comes from nuclear power. As our requirement for both electricity generation in terms of reliability as well as in terms of meeting our climate goal goes up, we really need to not only maintain that 20%, but really build on it and expand on that. And this is really where the bipartisan infrastructure law and the Inflation Reduction Act 
have some really important policy tools to do just that. The bipartisan infrastructure law, for instance, includes a uh, program to support nuclear reactors that are currently operating to operate uh, for longer uh, period of time. And that program is uh, even supported through the Inflation Reduction Act, which, as I mentioned earlier, includes 10 years of tax credits for the generation of clean nuclear power. But in addition to maintaining this current fleet, there's also a lot of interest uh, to pursue more advanced, uh, newer reactor designs. Some of these, for example, are small modular nuclear reactors that are just more flexible. They can be sited in places that uh, may not have the need for a large uh, nuclear power plant, for example. And the bipartisan infrastructure law in particular has funding for these advanced reactor types. Currently at the moment, the Department of Energy has partnered with a company in Wyoming, another one in Washington, in a public-private partnership to advance these newer uh, reactor designs. So a lot of really exciting work and innovation happening uh, on the nuclear front. In both the IIJA and the Inflation Reduction Act, in the way that they were covered by the media, I think the aspects relating to electric vehicles probably got more headlines than just about anything else. And this included electrical vehicle charging infrastructure in the IIJA, as well as billions for research funds for improving battery technology. And of course, the Inflation Reduction Act extended tax credits for the purchases of both new and used vehicles. And I wonder how you think the combination of these programs are going to affect our transportation system over the next several years. Thanks for that question, Ed. And you're absolutely right. Uh, Electric vehicles have been getting a lot of attention and a lot of exciting policies in these bills toward uh, electric vehicle uh, deployment. This is just an area that's been booming. You know, in 2021, in the United States, there were around 300,000 electric vehicles sold. A year later in 2022, that figure had already doubled to 600,000. And we're seeing the same trend worldwide. In 2022, there were 7 million EVs sold around the world. And these numbers are going up very, very rapidly. And these bills really recognize this shift and this interest toward electric vehicles. And what the Inflation Reduction Act in particular uh, included, uh, which is which is really important for the adoption of electric vehicles, are tax incentives, uh, tax credit incentives. So for example, for a new electric vehicle, the Inflation Reduction Act includes a $7,500 tax credit that can be used at the point of sale. Uh, and for used vehicles, uh, it includes four thousand uh, dollars worth of tax credit per uh, used vehicles for consumers that are that are interested in in purchasing an EV. In addition to these incentives for the purchase, there's also incentives for chargers, even for home chargers. Uh, for example, the Inflation Reduction Act includes incentives for folks to deploy chargers at home, and these can be two-way chargers. So. You can uh, charge your electric vehicle, and when you don't need the excess energy, you can dispatch that energy, you can sell that energy uh, back into the grid. When you combine something like this with the tax credits that were included in these bills for geothermal systems or for solar rooftops, uh, you can really see how your own solar panels can be used, for example, to charge your electric vehicle, when you don't need the miles, you can use that 
charge as a storage medium, and then you can power up uh, your home and sell that energy back into the grid when you don't need it. So a lot of really interesting incentives at, at play there. And the second piece is really through the bipartisan infrastructure law, which addresses the range anxiety that some folks have when it comes to electric vehicles. We need more charging stations across the country. What the bipartisan infrastructure law essentially had was a $7 billion, really significant uh, amount of money to build out charging stations across the country. $5 billion of that is through uh, formula funds. These will go to all 50 states that have uh, submitted plans. And essentially what we're uh, looking at here is charging stations uh, every 50 miles of an interstate highway to really address that uh, range anxiety. So in combination with the tax credits uh, for purchasing EVs, uh, purchasing the uh, the chargers, and then the charging stations across the interstate highway system in the country, these bills will really advance our electric uh, vehicle goals um, and, and, and really do a lot to meet that consumer demand. And then, and then finally, on the manufacturing piece that you mentioned, it's very important for the United States to bring back the electric vehicle supply chain to this country. At the moment, a lot of these batteries uh, for EVs are made overseas, particularly in China. And there was a real desire on the part of the legislators, the White House, the president, to really bring back uh, that supply chain to the U.S. And there's very strong incentives for the manufacturing sector now in this country to build out that supply chain. Well, we all got a real lesson in supply chain in the last couple of years, whether it was uh, masks or uh, semiconductors. So sounds like a, a lesson that's being applied in this instance. Finally, let me ask you about the funding for a variety of energy technologies in the IAJA, including hydrogen and carbon capture and storage. And I wonder how the department's thinking about these technologies and what role they'll play in the energy system. These are, these are really, really promising technologies. Um, at hydrogen, for example, can be used in as zero emission vehicles. It can be used in heavy-duty vehicles. It can be used for shipping. So, so, so very important technology in the uh, transportation sector. But in addition to that, it's also a great form of uh, energy storage medium that can really stabilize the grid, particularly as we're, we're seeing more and more renewables integrated into the grid. Hydrogen is a, a very promising technology that can really back up a lot of those renewable sources. Finally, hydrogen can also be used as a energy source for industrial facilities. And uh, the bipartisan infrastructure bill in particular includes a $8 billion investment for public-private par partnerships to essentially include demonstration projects across the country when it comes to hydrogen. And this is one of the programs where we're getting a lot of interest in different communities, uh, in different states, really partnering up uh, with industry, with universities to build out these hydrogen hubs. And the way the hydrogen would be produced is essentially through either nuclear power or through uh, renewables or through natural gas coupled with carbon capture and sequestration. So in all cases, we're talking about clean hydrogen production and what the bipartisan infrastructure law essentially does is to 
include investments, funding for these public-private partnerships so that we can build out that clean hydrogen supply chain. Uh, so quite a bit of interest on, on, on that front. Similarly, when it comes to carbon capture and sequestration, this is a really uh, big part of the bipartisan infrastructure law. That bill makes a lot of investments uh, north of $10 billion to really push out and deploy and demonstrate uh, that we can do carbon capture at large levels. So these will be demonstration projects that will demonstrate the capturing of carbon from power plants or from industrial facilities. Investments include transporting that carbon and ultimately uh, sequestering it underground in order to uh, essentially reduce the emissions from those uh, various sectors and, and really help clean up the emissions from both industrial and the power sector. And then in addition to these investments in the bipartisan infrastructure law for both hydrogen and uh, carbon capture and sequestration, as I mentioned earlier, the uh, Inflation Reduction Act includes that 10 years worth of tax credits so that these technologies can really be deployed at large scale. So again, uh, two really promising technologies and these bills will go a long way to ensure that these are, these are deployed and that they're scaled. Well, Dr. Nuri, thanks so much for taking the time to share both your insight and expertise on these matters with us and on these two pieces of legislation. Take care. It was great to be with you, Ed. Thank you. And I'll be back right after this with David Terry from the National Association of State Energy Officials to get the state-level perspective on the effects of the IIJA and the Inflation Reduction Act on energy systems. There are virtual meetings and there's NCSL Basecamp 2022. This event takes the online experience to a new level, providing unique opportunities to engage with experts, ask burning questions, and walk away with new ideas covering every angle of state policy. Join us online November 15th and 16th from wherever you are. Register today at www.ncsl.org forward slash Basecamp 2022. David, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thanks for uh, letting me join today. Well, first, thanks so much for taking the time to join us in uh, talking about the Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act, and particularly how that affects the energy systems in our country. To get started, why don't you tell us a little bit about your background and the organization you had, the National Association of State Energy Officials, or NASIO. Pleased to. It's an interesting uh, path. We all have different uh, different pathways we get from out of uh, college and where we find ourselves. But I, I started my first serious job at the National Academy of Sciences in the transportation area and moved on to energy technology and innovation with a few different uh, uh, nonprofits and think tanks and private investment uh, involved in those innovative technologies, moved on to uh, help uh, launch the Governor's Wind Energy Coalition before coming to NASIO on most of those roles. The thing they had in common was really where state policy intersects with business investment and energy investment in particular and federal policy. And it's a, a great crossroads. And NASIO, the National Association of State Energy Officials, is exactly that. 
we are, are led by and uh, all of our decisions are made by our state members, the 56 states, territories, and District of Columbia energy offices. Uh, those are often, uh, most often appointed by governors and um, they make, uh, they guide us, lead us, tell us where to go. Uh, our job is to bring together the really the role of NASIO, um, our different state perspectives, state best practices, new policy ideas, and where there's agreement on priority issues and engaging the federal government um, certainly express their opinions and what they want to see in policy. And with the private sector, which is very often uh, synergistic with many of the state's interests and goals, uh, making sure that the states have access to those folks and get their views known as well. So a very similar role to what NCSL does with state legislators and legislative staff. Let's talk a little bit about the role of state energy offices, particularly in the implementation of the IIJA. And how are those offices working with DOE to implement the law? I guess a, a couple of things. The, I, obviously, the states are all uh, very different, always in a different place, geography, policy, energy resources, and so on and so forth, uh, business opportunities, workforce. One of the things that distinguishes the energy offices from other state agencies that may have some energy role, the utility commissions certainly come to mind, in the, principally in the electric sector, most energy offices have a more holistic kind of comprehensive view, looking at all energy sectors, major production, use, transmission, distribution, but also a lot of end-use sectors and workforce and all the components that go into the energy elements of the economy. So if you think of the issues that a legislator or a governor might care about that are kind of those, that broader perspective as it applies to their state, that's, a state ener- that's how a state energy office approaches most things. So with regard to the Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act, the IJA, there are many, many opportunities. Most of those are competitive opportunities, at least with regard to those opportunities at the U.S. Department of Energy that the states are engaging in. And the states have been voicing um, their opinion on many parts of the IJA actually for a long time. There are many components of that bill that date back five, even 10 years that came together in the bipartisan uh, bill. Some parts are new, but many parts have been around for a while. So when it when it landed at the Department of Energy, we immediately uh, began informing our state members about what was in the bill, bringing them together uh, so they could talk about what were their priorities, what were their concerns, and then elevating with DOE uh, comments the states had. The states uh, have been providing input to the Department of Energy's request for information um, on uh, dozens and dozens of competitive procurements. But also another important area, there are just several pots of formula funding that go out to the states from that bill. They're not, not actually a, a large amount by historical standards. There's $500 million through the state energy program that goes out to every state and territory in the District of Columbia by formula. One of the concerns the states have had is that is a very flexible program. It allows governors and legislators to really, within a broad uh, area, allow the energy office to invest in activities in their state. And the states are are concerned to get those dollars quickly. Well, we're coming up uh, uh, on another anniversary of the passage of that infrastructure again, and the states still do not have those formula funds uh, from the federal government. So that's a concern. But I think from an opportunity perspective, we've seen the states come together with Department of Energy officials, letting them know about their interest in hydrogen hubs, in transmission and distribution planning, in carbon management, um, a whole range of, of grid issues, frankly, uh, and also uh, uh, programs that, uh, that will touch 
uh, lower moderate income uh, end use consumers and businesses. And that dialogue has been very positive and very good. And one place I have to highlight in particular, the infrastructure bill uh, established a joint office between the U.S. Department of Energy and U.S. Department of Transportation. And I think there was a certain amount of trepidation about, well, how would this joint federal office work? Would that be difficult? And it has turned out to be really a shining example. The, the energy offices at the state level and the state departments of transportation in many states have a history of working together or at least engaging. Department of Energy and the Department of Transportation at the federal level have been in constant dialogue with the states, both the departments of transportation and the energy offices, trying as best they can to get their input and move quickly. And they've done that. The states have gotten their plans in. The department has provided the right information. So that interaction could not be better. We see a similar uh, situation emerging um, on grid resilience funding. There's $2.5 billion that will go out to the states uh, from the Department of Energy for grid resilience. It's a fairly broad definition, and in, in, it's one of those things where it is a lot of money and it isn't. It's a tremendous amount of money from a taxpayer perspective, and it's a huge help. But obviously, the grid is a, a trillion-dollar enterprise and more, and so it's just a piece of that. In almost 90% of the cases uh, where states are reporting, the energy office has been designated by the governor to carry out that program. Those plans are under development, and the interaction, again, with the Department of Energy is, is exceptional. Um, I think their staff are doing their level best to um, engage with the states, take their opinions, and so overall, I think, quite positive. I guess just one last comment. There has been some criticism of the Department of Energy for moving uh, slowly on some of these efforts, and there's always some truth uh, and, and room for improvement. The department has also been dealt a very difficult hand, um, some 60 new programs. The vast majority of those are competitive um, and have to be done in a fair and appropriate manner. That's a huge workforce strain, and I think our colleagues at the state level and at DOE are, are really doing their best on that front, and uh, hats off to them uh, at the federal level in particular for what they're, what they're trying to accomplish. It is not easy. This is the fourth podcast we've done about the IIJA. We've also looked at uh, roads, bridges, transportation, as well as water, and a general overall look at the the fiscal package. And I also recently did a podcast with the folks from Caesar at DOE talking about grid resiliency and that there would be some funds in there. So I, I have come to an appreciation of the enormous complexity uh, within both federal and state agencies in trying to deal effectively with this money and to move these programs along. So that certainly comports with all the things that uh, I've heard from other folks. I think you're absolutely correct. And, and CSER, the Grid Deployment Office, the Office of Electricity, all these are Department of Energy offices. I think the good news is that that most in Congress, both Republicans and Democrats, understood that this was a, a big opportunity and a difficult challenge. And they spread the money over five years. And I think that was pretty wise direction that they gave so that we can take some steps and make sure that we're delivering something on these important actions and then modify those um, uh, over the next four or five years. And I, I think that's one of those things, again, I think Congress gets criticized a lot for how they, how they pass legislation. It's difficult, challenging, but I think that five-year element, I've been around Washington a long time and I thought it was pretty, pretty brilliant and pretty practical. Yeah, I think the feedback that I've gotten from a variety of people is that states did have a pretty good opportunity to make their case and in many instances felt they were pretty successful in how the program was put together. Let me turn to legislatures. What is there here that in the energy area that requires legislative action? 
Um, quite a number of things, actually. Some of them are near term, some are longer term. In the near term, of course, for most states, not every state, but for the vast majority of states, any dollars that come into the state, of course, uh, federal otherwise, need to be approved by the legislature. And that's a, a process that's a little different in each state. But that that's a near term item that's important, particularly where the formula funds are concerned that offer greater flexibility. And that needs to happen. In many of the states where there, there are opportunities in the infrastructure bill in particular for almost every state of one kind or another, And most of those are competitive. Most of those involve the private sector in some way. And the energy offices are often working with the private companies trying to help them develop projects and programs that they can propose and hopefully win for the state and for their businesses to to move forward. That often involves cost share or match. That typically comes from the private sector, but often there's something that's needed also from the public sector. And so some energy offices have asked for and received uh, matching funds to go toward projects. If they're successful, those will be utilized. I think that's another one. I think in more the medium and longer term, many of these infrastructure investments certainly require rethinking at the federal level of how projects are approved, whether that's uh, environmental compliance or federal lands issues and so forth. And at the state level, there are often streamlining or other uh, regulatory approaches that need to be addressed as well to make these projects move forward at the state or the local level for that matter. And I think legislatures are obviously you know, central to that happening, uh, to take in comments and, and activities to figure out how they go forward. The energy offices have a long, a long time role in many states to respond to either their governor and or their legislatures when they're dealing with some of these questions around how do we streamline a process or siting or some other activity, the energy office will frequently convene energy interest, whether that's private businesses, consumers, whoever it is, to try to get input and reach some consensus. Part of that is educating the people that come to the table. Part of that is getting educated by those that are experiencing it or may, and then taking that back to the legislature and the governor as best they can in some distilled format so a decision can be made. Because those offices are generally not regulatory in nature, they may have some some functions in that regard, but because they're not, they're not seen as threatening to the energy industry and helps open that dialogue. So I think it, it makes a, a big opportunity, certainly, for the offices and for the legislatures, but the legislature's role is obviously critical in making those kind of improvements. And and they change over time. Markets are dynamic, our energy needs are dynamic, and and certainly our laws and policies need to change as well. So you mentioned before that states like to do things their own way, whether that's the legislature or state energy offices. So given that and your long experience in this area, do you see any best practices or models of how legislatures and legislators can best interact with their state energy office? Yeah, I think I think a few and and I I won't cite specific states. I certainly could, but I think it's I think it's more important to to get at some of the the commonalities or or where we've seen things go well. One big picture uh common theme and it's it's really it has a lot of applications, but a, quite a number of legislatures have tasked their energy offices with doing periodically doing a comprehensive energy plan. So looking at all the energy resources in the state, both, you know, conventional resources, renewables, you name it, but also human resources, uh, corporate uh, intellectual property, a broad range of things. What what assets do the state have to bring to the table from an economic perspective, a security perspective, environmental, whatever it may be? Then later, the legislature uh, needs to act or needs to consider something. They have the information, the data, the recommendations in that to draw upon. It's a good starting place, essentially. So, so there's that piece, and that that has delivered a lot of value over time. I think the second one is when an issue is sensitive or volatile or just really complicated, frankly, and needs time and thought, 
that convening function that often a legislature will assign to an energy office? Can you can you bring together stakeholders, do some analysis, do a study, figure out you know what we might do in a particular area? What are the issues we need to figure out? What are the what are the solution sets we can look at to guide us? And that has worked over and over again in in big ways and small. It's been on things as large as transmission and as small as product standards in an area. So it's a really it's a it's a really good tool. It's also a pretty low cost tool. And often the energy offices are able to leverage other dollars that they get from the federal government for those kind of activities. So I think that's a good one. I think the third one is in um, from an educational perspective. And most of our offices are, are fairly small in staff number, but they're very they're very knowledgeable. They're good at education, and that certainly that can help be responsive to a legislator but also to a legislator's constituency that, like any area, if you don't work in it, it's complicated, it's it's sort of opaque. And I think that's another way where we've seen a lot of success, just from a, just a straight-up educational perspective to help inform the citizenry about where does energy come from? What are the issues in our state? Uh, why don't we do certain things? Maybe there's an economic reason or some other reason. And if I could add one other thing, I, and it is it is striking, and I, most states do rely on this, but I think again, it's if it isn't if energy isn't your area of expertise, you know, it's difficult to know um, maybe the right uh, the right approach, maybe the best approach to something. And one of the things we often see confused at the federal level, at the state level, and with the private sector is there's a policy role. So the legislator the legislators you know make policy in the state. The governor, of course, uh, engaged and does that as well. In the electric space, the utility regulators for the vast majority of states are, are, are regulating the power sector, at least that part of the power sector that's regulated, not all of it is. And those are really distinct functions. And we often see um, a private sector or federal government or, or, or others, others in state government going to a regulator asking them to do things that are more policy-like or going to a energy office, which is in the typically in the executive branch or responding to the policy function the legislature has, and asking them to do a regulatory function. And it's it is a it, it's kind of a basic thing, but it's an important thing because you won't really get the result you want if you confuse those. They're both important. They need to work together. Um, and we see a lot of that. The IIJA and the Inflation Reduction Act, I think we can say it's the administration saying, this is what our priorities are. This is what we think energy policy effort should go to. Do states agree with that? Are states on the same page as uh, as the federal government, or at least this administration? I, I think the real answer is yes and no. I, I think on the IJA, the infrastructure bill, not just because it was a bipartisan bill but from a from a vote perspective, um, you know, nothing is completely overwhelmingly bipartisan, but it was it was pretty close. There are a lot of elements in there that make sense to most people. Um, we all know the transmission system needs help. The grid needs the grid needs modernizing. So many of those components, not everyone, but a lot of them. We need to deal with the the major oil petrochemical complex in the country. Uh, those major companies are 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 talking to us every day about how they're dealing with carbon management. And the infrastructure bill has a lot in that. And we have states and Louisiana and North Dakota and Wyoming that are working very hard with their private sector on those issues. And so you see a lot more agreement across the board. Not every one of those activities fits every state, obviously, but I would say in general, it's pretty positive. I think it's a, a very constructive approach. The Inflation Reduction Act being a Democratic-only bill, a reconciliation bill, obviously there are many items in that in addition to the overall spending decisions, which many have issues with, of course. But there are so many programs in every agency, so many places. I think it is more challenging and there's less uh, less agreement on some of those programs because there are so different. But there is strong agreement on some. And I think 
a few examples. The U.S. Department of Agriculture's Renewable Energy Program for Rural Communities has broad support. It has for years um, across the board. It's had strongest support for Midwest and Central Region states. And that's an example of one that I think virtually all of our states agree with. There are two residential programs that go directly to the energy office. They're rebates for consumers for high efficiency equipment and insulation and whole home activities. And a lot of that is geared toward lower and moderate income folks. And that's a formula program that will go through the state energy offices. That has awfully strong support across the board. And so there are a number of programs like that that do. And there's some some others that are less so. There's some good financing programs the Environmental Protection Agency has, some streamlining of activities. So I think it is the size of it that is more challenging. And I'm not sure everybody's got their hands around all pieces of it. There are some pieces that I think will be more difficult for some of the states to deal with just in terms of traditionally how they've acted on energy. When you have a more of an incentive and innovation approach, um, anything that asks of the states to pass rules or pass additional restrictions, that creates differences of opinion. And and, And I think we'll see that in some of these programs not those ones that I mentioned, but certainly some of the other ones that are more regulatory in nature. Were there any aspects of the IIJA or the Inflation Reduction Act that you think are really giving state energy officials heartburn or you know, sleepless nights uh, at the thought of trying to implement them? Yeah, I, I think there, there are a few. Part of it is just there, you know, this is a, a great deal of money when you combine the two bills together in particular at a time when I think every part of the U.S. economy is in need of a uh, trained workforce. And so it's a challenge in general, and, and we sort of accept that. I think the, the bigger challenge has been with, as a state, it's not as though you're a, an individual company representing a particular interest. You're representing the state population. Our federal procurement rules tend to make it very difficult for state officials to engage in an open dialogue about particular activities which are going to be competed. And there are good reasons for that. But the downside of that is our members, and I think any any organization representing different parts of the economy would say this, have a lot of expertise in these areas, on the ground, working with their companies, working with their consumers, working with their legislators and their governors, and they have opinions that would improve those activities. And I, I think some of the procurement process gets in the way of that. And I, I don't know how we fix it, quite honestly, but that has been a hindrance. And I think it concerns the states because they want this to go well. They want the taxpayers' money to be used well, obviously. And so part of that is informing the process. I think the other item that has been a concern is some of the dollars that are formula in nature have moved very slowly. I think that's a concern. That's getting addressed. I think the third one is one that everybody supports, everybody we work with supports, and that's the Buy American and keeping manufacturing here in the U.S. where it belongs. I think the the concern is that there are some products that major manufacturers and minor manufacturers are telling us simply are not available, um, and they don't expect them to be available for sometime, as in years, not months. And so what, what's the solution for the glide path to both serve that absolutely right policy goal, but at the same time, not create a problem for consumers that might benefit from this or infrastructure that's genuinely needed? Electric sector is an obvious one. So those are probably the three items. I don't know if they're keeping folks awake, but they're ones that I think everybody feels like we need to do a better job of. I've certainly heard that's same concern echoed in other sectors that are affected by the IIJA, uh, as well as just the ongoing uh, supply line problems and the, as you mentioned, the trained workforce issues. David, thank you so much for walking us through this. It's it's very complicated. Uh, Thank you very much. I appreciate your your time. Take care. You're welcome. And thanks thanks for the invitation. 
talking with Dr. Allie Nuri from the U.S. Department of Energy and David Terry from the National Association of State Energy Officials about the Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act and the Inflation Reduction Act and how they'll impact the energy sector. Thanks for listening. We've also done three other episodes on the IIJA and how it will affect roads, bridges, transportation, and water systems. You can check out all the podcasts from the National Conference of State Legislatures by searching for NCSL Podcasts wherever you get your podcasts. Listen to our monthly series, Legislatures, The Inside Story, and our special series, Building Democracy.